Hey folks, welcome back to Redeeming Disorder. I am really excited for the interview I have for you today. I hope you are too, because it's a really great one. It is with someone who has so much to say about mental health from so many different angles, and because she shares so much that is personal and professionally relevant, she's a medical professional, she doesn't necessarily want to blow up her own spot, so she is staying anonymous in this episode. We're calling her Olivia. But don't let the anonymity fool you and make you think that she is cagey about mental health. She has a ton to express, and she does. She's super forthcoming. And she may be young, but she has seen a lifetime's worth of mental health struggles. A little bit personally in herself, a lot in her family, and a lot in her job. So Olivia works as a nurse. She's worked in a psychiatric ward. And in that role, she's struggled with... A lot of things I've struggled with in doing this work, in interviewing people and hearing their stories and their dark stuff and talking about that. And namely what I mean here is empathy burnout. So Olivia is very empathetic, and she is very empathetic because of what she's been exposed to in her personal life and what she's seen in her family and what she knows. So this makes her really good at doing her job as a nurse, at connecting with psychiatric patients and helping them but also it makes it very difficult on her. So it's a blessing in making her more effective, yet a curse in making the work very emotionally taxing. And after talking to her, I just really commend her for fighting through that and doing what she does as a nurse, especially in light of everything she's seen in, it was 23 or so years when we talked in 2018. It's obviously a few more years now. But in those years, she's dealt with depression and PTSD herself. She's seen mental illness in her extended family, in her parents, and in her two siblings, she's seen self-harm and suicide attempts. So heavy stuff, very difficult stuff. There are parallels here with the last interview with Lauren Shug from last week, which talked about self-harm. Lauren was super brave in talking about her own experiences self-harming and then healing from that self-harm and especially in the last 15 or 20 minutes of that interview she was so candid and raw and gave such a window into what it's like to feel those compulsions what it's like to struggle with self-harm so if you missed that it's probably worth listening to and if you're with it if you're current on the podcast congrats i'm so happy to be bringing you this new interview with olivia she has a ton to say from the other side of seeing self-harm of her siblings seeing mental health struggles of seemingly everyone around her not only in family but in her day-to-day -day job in the media which we get to talking about media stereotypes tv stereotypes of mental health and mental disorder versus the reality of those things per olivia's experience often those media depictions and surface impressions tend to paint in broad strokes and miss a ton of the nuance of mental disorder and the reality often can be a lot more relatable the people in the psychiatric ward might be a lot more similar to you than you would assume from watching a TV show like Monk or a movie like Split or any other superficial depiction of mental disorder. Olivia also speaks to the unique struggles that are faced by LGBT folks like herself and anyone who doesn't fit into the conventional boxes of gender and sexuality, sexual preference. So 
with a heavy heart and with some tears, she is brave enough to go into why there's a correlation between not conforming to gender and sexuality norms and mental disorder, why mental disorder can be exacerbated for someone who's closeted or isn't understood or isn't accepted. She treats that delicate topic with a lot of grace and with a lot of insight. So on all these fronts, in so many different ways, there's a ton of insight to be gleaned from this episode. And I hope you do. I hope you've been gleaning a lot from this podcast and enjoying it. And if you are, you will be my best friend for two weeks if you go to iTunes and you write a review. It can be short, it could just be a few words, but it really does help promoting the podcast, getting more recent reviews at the top of the reviews page, allowing people to see it, especially as I'm not promoting it on social media. So if you have the time, if you're liking the podcast, and can log on and just rate and review the podcast quickly, you'd be a true hero. And I don't have too much more to set up for you here other than just one more housekeeping announcement about audio. So the audio for this podcast is great up until just past the 35-minute mark, at which point we have to switch from lav mic to room mic, and the audio does get worse. Overall, it's not a huge problem, but I, I always like to err on the side of just letting you know I don't want anyone investing time in a podcast only to be disappointed. So now you know, and without further ado, I hope you enjoy this spirited, informative, heavy, but very worthwhile conversation with Olivia. Here she is. So we're we're all set. Okay. <laughs> I hope you don't feel too weird about like no. all the recording and stuff. No, I mostly just like talk with my hands, so I'm gonna try yeah. to like <laughs> dial it down. Cool. It's a pretty it's a pretty wide shot. So okay. Even if you I'm do a little here. gesture, you should be okay. <laughs> yeah, you should be all good. But yeah, thank you for for being up for talking. I know you just switched to a night shift and. Things are a little crazy right now, so okay. really appreciate it. Because yeah, um, no. you know, a lot of stuff like stood out to me when we first talked, mm-hmm. and when you first reached out about your story, and a lot of stuff I related to just right. in being motivated to do this work and right. helping people with mental disorder, but also finding that work a little hard because it might remind you of your own stuff. Yeah. Which I'd love to to get into that, but I guess just to start as close to the beginning as we can, and I guess you can just tell me what the beginning is. But I'm curious when you first were interested in being a nurse and how you started that process to become a registered nurse? Yeah, I didn't actually start out college as a nursing major. I started out as a fashion design major. Wow, okay. Um, So I quickly realized through like three sewing classes that I was not, (laughs) not cut out for that. So my niece was born the year after, so I'd been in college a year, Mm -hmm. and so Um, In 2014, my niece was born, and she had a traumatic birth, unfortunately, and had to be airflown to a bigger hospital, Mm -hmm. and that was my first introduction into hospitals. I had never even, like, been, like, in a hospital setting, Mm -hmm. seen nurses, seen doctors. Like, I had just gone in for checkups. Yeah. And so, just seeing the care that all the nurses there gave to her during and even to our whole family like during the month that she was in the NICU what is the NICU just the neonatal ICU got it yeah she just I mean wouldn't have been who she is today without the 
care and knowledge of the nurses. She is doing a lot better today. She did suffer a little bit of brain damage, but mm. she's she goes to therapy and she's she can talk. She's a little miracle. So nice. So that's what got me into nursing. I actually switched my major in the waiting room of the hospital. So oh wow. Yeah, I was like, I know what I want to do. So. <laughs> That's, Very cool. That's when I started. And how old is she now? She's just about to turn four. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that dry was definitely born uh, from seeing things firsthand. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you talked a lot about um, different areas of nursing, and mm -hmm. you have to do rotations, and right. you had to rotate to a psychiatric mm -hmm. nursing role, and then you know that kind of presented challenges, right? Right. Yeah. So how nursing school, at least the one I went to, is you do two years of prereqs, like anatomy, and then you do two and a half years of nursing school. So five semesters. And so in your second semester, you have to go to a psychiatric units. And so that includes the hospital where they keep more unstable patients, mm -hmm. rehab for like drug and alcohol, that type of stuff. And so not even a week before I had gone in to start my second semester, my brother had um, this incident where I had to call the police, unfortunately. So what was in my mind whenever I started out that semester was he was very unstable and unstable to the point of where he would try to hurt himself to get back at the family, get back at my mom. Mm. And so that was like my image just right off the bat. And so I was like, you know, I was nervous. I was like, I yeah. can't do this. I, right. I was like, this. I'm only in my second semester of nursing school. I was like. You were expecting what you'd been exposed to. Right. Yeah. And so I reached out to my, to my instructor and I was like, look, I can't be going and seeing unstable patients. Unfortunately, I was like, it's just too too recent for mm -hmm. me and so all all we did was talk about it and so she was like well you'll be fine you know just go in there and I was like okay so I just went in there hoping for the best and luckily it was everything was fine that day and the place that we went to was up at the hospital where I went to school and so it was it was a normal day I was just mostly afraid, and this is really specific, but um, I was mostly afraid of seeing people hit their heads against the wall because I had seen that before. Where had you seen that? My brother. Your brother did that? He did that a lot. So he is autistic as well as mentally ill. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, he's very high functioning, so he's independent and he lives on his own now but he would do things just purposefully just to get back I guess yeah I mean that's the only way to put it is just to, like get back at the family and what he had been through so that's what I was specifically I was like if I see that like I just I was like I have to go home I have to be away from it but instead what I found at that psychiatric facility was just a bunch of people like me and all we did that day we didn't do any care or anything 
we just sat down and we just talked to them for six hours or so and so just got to hear their stories and and get to know them and why they were there and kind of learn about their journey mm-hmm. and and most of them yeah were just just like me and so that that really struck a chord because I had not been in a psychiatric facility other than seeing my brother. Yeah. And so when I was there for the first time, I was like, wow, this is just not what I expected at all. So. Wow. So after that, did you have a perspective shift on, on doing that work? Yeah. So I guess it was kind of funny. It was like most of the class they were like okay like next like we don't like this type of work you know these patients are crazy you know like we don't want to work with them whatever and so they like move on and i moved from the i don't want to work with these people to oh like this is really you know a neat area of nursing that i didn't even think about because i Initially, I just was like, nope, I don't want to be around mental health. Like, I've been around it my whole life. I was like, I don't want to go to work and then see it. But I just kind of found peace whenever I was there, just talking to the patients because I just resonated with so many of their stories and just all their life events that led up to where they were. And I was like, I could be here today, you know, so... Like you could be there if, if the circumstances were a certain way. Right, mm. right. Because a lot of them, it would just be something just snapped or they had, you know, the death of a loved one or something and and they just got so depressed. And at that point, that was the very beginning of my realization of me having a mental illness was seeing them mm. and then kind of comparing and being like, oh, my mental illness doesn't have to look like Jonas's for me to have a mental illness. It doesn't have to look like my mom's for me to have a mental illness. And so it really was like that semester. And then um, kind of the summer after that, that really got me to go and see a doctor and get some help for what I was dealing with. And did it feel almost also like uh, mental illness didn't have to look like this perception you had, you know, from your mom and from Jonas, but also from just media and cultural perceptions that (laughs) we probably, you know, show the roughest edges and show like, you know, the TV show Monk or something extreme. Right. I was going to say, yeah, Monk, Monk's a good one because, yeah, his OCD is so extreme, you know. And then just recently how they had, um, what was it, Split? maybe where the know. guy he has split personalities oh okay and so tina and i actually saw that on we went to a drive-in on one of our dates and i was mortified by like what was shown in that and it really what's the word Villa, vilified? Oh, vilified there yeah. we go Villainized. really vilified. vilified mentally ill people and i was just I mean, we were there. It was only like our third date, so I was like trying to (laughs) keep it cool. But I was like, yeah, yeah, I was like, this is terrible. Could you so say like what it uh, showed? I'm just curious. So it shows 
it's this guy who has split personalities and he kidnaps these girls and so throughout the movie it shows like he'll come into the room as different people and it really vilifies mentally ill people. It was terrible to see, I mean, the media put somebody like that in the light, somebody so vulnerable, and there are people who actually do deal with this disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could only imagine if I was dealing with like a multiple personality disorder, and that's the movie that makes, you know, makes the list. I'd right. be like, right. well, how do I, you know, yeah. I can't talk to my friends about this. I can't openly say, you know, I have multiple personality disorder because they're going to be like, oh, like split? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like, no, nah, I don't want to murder anybody. I don't want right. to. Yeah. So that was upsetting. And that was yeah, our third date. And luckily we did have a conversation about it and she was also weirded out by the movie. Yeah. So that was just one example that I had seen that I was just like, gosh, like that was bad, you know? I think something, yeah, I think something like that's important because it's like the extremity sells, but when that's presented and when that's compounded with the fact that like our, you know, our uh -huh. framework around mental health is we have all these disorders and it does seem like we often assume disorders are like their caricature. We assume right. that someone who's schizophrenic is always hearing things yeah. and in a complete dream world all right. the time. Right. And you know, I'm sure your experience has shown it's it's a lot there yeah. are a lot more gray areas than that. Yeah, for sure. And it has been upsetting. I mean there's not in T V shows I can't think of anything besides Monk and where it's literally centered around his O C D and then his like obsession with finding out like his wife's murder and all that. I can't think of any like TV show just off the top of my head where it just features a person with depression or with a mental illness where that's not the entire focus. Right. Or um, where it's not, you know, blown up. Right. I, which I can understand right. it because it's, it's like that wouldn't really. Right. That wouldn't be entertaining. That wouldn't, guess, make, yeah. but. <laughs> wouldn't make for good TV, but anytime that mental illness is featured in the media, it's always depressed person. It's not person with depression. Mm -hmm. It's just very much like, oh, okay, they're going to, you know, go through a battle and then they're going to try to commit suicide and then everybody's going to be there. And, and, you know, it's, it's not glamorous like that in real life. There's a lot of, yeah, gray areas mm -hmm. and a lot of struggle that I guess media can't capture. Right. It's not a, it's hard to capture the nuance when you're going for short clips on TV to a mass right. audience. And right. Yeah. No, I agree that it's kind of a shame because there's already a message out there that a lot of people are doing great work on saying, you know, mm -hmm. people shouldn't be ashamed of their mental illnesses. Right. It's very stigmatized and shouldn't be. So let's talk about it. But I feel like less common than that is thinking about why it's so stigmatized and mm -hmm. why we have these really extreme perceptions of a divide between the mentally ill and the healthy. And I feel as if what you're talking about uh -huh. is a large part of the reason, like in, even in your case where you probably saw being mentally ill as this huge thing that you'd never identify with mm -hmm. until you saw it in a more realistic light. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Have That's you had, right. you know, and not to say that extreme things don't happen. Like, have there been instances in, during your rotation in the psychiatric ward or just things you've heard about where it was hard for you, especially like reminding you of, you know, your family and 
in mental health issues of your own and around you? Yeah, there have been several, um, and they were luckily, well, and unluckily earlier on, I guess in my nursing career, because I didn't know how to deal with the stuff. So I didn't know how to leave my own emotions and personal bias. And sometimes I still don't. I mean, like, I'll, I'll be honest, if I see a patient I identify with, I'm just, you know, I'm in there. I'm like there for them. But I remember having a patient very early on. He was bipolar and um, schizophrenic. And he was having hallucinations. And he had kicked out most of the nurses and most of the staff and I sat down that day I I was still a nursing student um, but this was not during my psychiatric rotation this was just me being on the floor and so all the nurses I mean not to talk bad about the nurses and he was not super kind to them but they were you know talking smack about him saying, you know, oh yeah, that one and so-and-so, he's crazy and he's, you know, whatever. And so they would mm -hmm. kind of avoid that room. Kind of uh, saying he's crazy in the sense of like, oh, he's just like this disorder. Kind of like you were talking about people say, yes. oh, a, a depressed person rather than a person with depression. Yes. They said, yeah, they would say he's crazy because he was having, he was having hallucinations, but they weren't, I mean, he was being treated for it, but they weren't talking about him in any respectful manner that you know a patient like him should have been hmm. so I was actually assigned to him and so I had heard this report from these nurses which was awful and so I had just said okay well I just want to go in there and see you know who he is and what he looks like and so the first like hour of my shift I just sat I just sat in there and I was just talking to him and he didn't kick me out. He didn't like yell at me. He wasn't being mean. I just sat down and I just listened to him because I wanted to know, you know, what like what, what are you here for and and talk to him like a person because it was clear that he wasn't getting that. And um, in him, I saw a lot of my brother, and so that was the same year as that psychiatric rotation. Um, it was just a semester after, and so he was just on a mental or, or on a regular like medical surgical floor for his mental illness, and so we got to talking and we just started talking about pets and home life and everything like that. And um, does he have three cats too? <laughs> <laughs> no, he had one cat and then he had a dog that had just passed away. I remember. Oh. So we had. A good shift and then there at the end so it was like maybe 30 minutes before leaving he was having a hallucination and he was yelling and he was yelling at me to get out and so I I mean I did I knew he was safe and it was just my presence that was agitating him and so I got yelled out to get out and then he like followed me and he like slammed the door and um, I just went to the bathroom and I just cried. I cried for like the rest of the shift because that just reminded me so much of Jonas because, I mean, he would just snap and then it's like I'm at my house yeah. and with a 14-year-old brother, you know? And so that was really tough. And I, 
I cried the entire way home. <laughs> My best friend was was um, with me, and she was talking to me about it. And um, the hour and a half it took to get us home, I was crying the entire time because I just said, you know, that's Jonas, and that's that's him, and that's his life. And he doesn't have schizophrenia, but he has bipolar disorder. And you know, his whole life, he's just gonna go go like that, go on and off medicine and just be in the hospital and be out of the hospital. And and so um, it, that one really bothered me. And fortunately, I haven't had a case like that as much, but I also haven't put myself out there as far as I did yeah. for that patient because I just, I learned like it'll hurt every time. So I, I still try to do like the one-on-one -on -one with the patient and get to know them and whatnot, but I don't do it as much as as I wish I could sometimes. So. Yeah. It sounds like the experience with Jonas made it a lot harder for you to do that, but then also made you really skillful at doing that where yeah. you know a lot of other nurses and a lot of other people might not have been able to go and talk to that guy as a person and right. connect with him like you did. Do you, do you feel like it's the very thing that makes it hard to do that work is what makes you good at that work? Yeah. And that's something I've also talked to my therapist about is um, just kind of, it is a blessing and a curse is that I just carry a lot of empathy. And so, yeah, it's like, I will try every which way I can to connect with the patient. And if I don't, I don't see that as success on my part. And so that does make it really hard because, yeah. I mean, even just last night working, I was taking care of five patients. It's hard to, to be one-on-one -on -one with, you know, each patient. And five patients is not very many to um, have that's not typical they just go easy on me because I'm a new new grad but it, it does it makes it really difficult yeah I bet yeah I, I can see why there's that stereotype of a doctor and I don't know if it applies to nurses too but you know after all that uh, working with patients of just kind of having to disconnect a bit and maybe having empathy burnout that it's hard to, it's probably hard to empathize that much with that many people all day. Right, right, yeah. I haven't experienced a full, like, empathy burnout, <laughs> but there are days where I come home and I'm just like, I'll be checked out, especially yeah. dealing with my own stuff. I'll just be like, I, I can't, I can't deal with everybody else and myself. And if Tina has stuff that she's got going on, I'm just like, Okay, and I just mentally check out and go into autopilot sometimes. What is it like to have such a earnest motivation to help people dealing with mental illness, but to know that that isn't always the healthiest thing for you? Oh, gosh. I wasn't going to cry. I, I, it sucks. And I, I've only been in this profession working for about, I've only been working for about three months. And I've already reconsidered it like 18 times because I'm just, it, it's so taxing on me that if it's not the healthiest thing and if it 
leads me to a darker future, then, you know, you can't really help people if you can't help yourself and be all there. And so that's something that I've just been still struggling with. Every time I go into work, I think about it and I'm like, maybe this isn't for me because I do, I get, I get attached and, and I can't, I cannot separate things sometimes, especially when I see parallels that are right, right back home. I just can't, can't separate it. Um, yeah. 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 So it, it is really, really tough. And, and probably, I mean, in the next 10 years or so, like I will probably have to find at least another area of nursing or another career or something because I can't do it my whole life where I'm at. Do you think maybe you're daunting yourself by looking at such a big time frame and saying, you know, I can't do it the rest of my life instead of just saying, uh, you know, I wonder if I can do it today. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that sounds like a lot of weight. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe as time permits, I can get myself back on track and then maybe grow up a little bit as well and, and get my emotions in check and then be able to, to help people like I want to. But I also know there are other ways that if, you know, I want to stay in the field that I, I can help people. I can be an advocate. I can go a more political side, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I think about that a lot. I think that flexibility is probably good, you know, being yeah. knowing that there are a lot of options never yeah. never getting too black and white about it yeah. but i mean this is the part of your story that really like resonated with me because you know even though i'm not in field as like you are and doing everything you are just doing this project and talking yeah, to yeah. a lot of people like yourself you know it's it's tough and like i've, I've been kind of depressed just because yeah. it when you have that experience yourself and in your family like you mm -hmm. know mental illness also runs in my family and right. it right it, it brings you home like you said Right. You know, and, and I imagine it's even harder when it's your career and you don't have a time frame. You know, I'm working on this book and mm -hmm. interviewing people and I can foresee in the next year, year and a half, I'll be able to do something else. But right. yeah, I feel your pain. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine hearing so many <laughs> back to back to back to back. I'd be like, okay. I'm mixing in doing hiking, national parks and stuff. Good, so it's good. spread out, I think, yeah. where it's, it's healthy. Good. And yeah, there's still a lot more I'm curious about with you and your story. It seems like this link between what drives you and also what upsets you is just really painful. Mm -hmm. And I know there's another painful link for you with the fact that you know so many people in the lgbtq community struggle with mental health issues yeah and you mentioned that you know you hate that those things are associated and yeah i can make guesses but i'd love to just hear from you what upsets you about that darn i should have brought my box of tissues <laughs> <laughs> sorry no it's okay Whew. yeah it gets me it gets me going um yeah just where to start yeah I mean, you could start, if you want to work up to it, you could start with just, like, why do you think that is? I'd like to say 
ignorance is the main <laughs> main one and that's also probably the main one for for just mental illness in general is just people not being aware of what actually causes mental illness and what causes someone to be gay or straight or whatever they identify as so there are kind of like two separate issues i guess at, at play where it's some people don't understand what it means to be lgbtq where that comes from and so at least in my opinion and my beliefs is that it doesn't necessarily have to be something that you're you're born with. I didn't figure everything out until I was 20. So it's not like I was born with this label and I just was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So, oh, okay, you know, connecting all these dots because for me it wasn't like that at all. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of like, oh yeah, that does make sense. Okay, this is, I guess, who I am. It wasn't like something that oh yeah, we knew she was gay from when she was a baby and you know, all that, which I feel like is kind of the argument currently, whereas you're born with it. Um, and some people are, there are some people, I have a cousin who you knew from whenever she was three, four years old and she does identify as a lesbian. So kind of seeing that is different from like my own where I was just kind of like, eh, well, I'll just figure it out when I figure it out. And so I did. And so I came out, let's see, in what's well, 2016, wasn't it? So right next to each other, I started getting treatment for depression about two months before I officially came out to everybody. I had been like out in high school, I guess, to my friends and just people who, you know, I cared to talk to about it. I went to an arts high school where like 75% of the people were gay. Mm -hmm. Our mascot was the rainbows. <laughs> so <laughs> Nice. Um, I went to a high school called Paideia and everyone called us Paigea. So we, we are a pretty big, not 25%, but a pretty big percentage too. Right. Yeah. So it, it was accepting, like it was an accepting community. And so I was just like, I didn't put a label on anything. I just was like, yeah, I'm a little bit queer, so so be it. And then, unfortunately, <laughs> my mental health and coming out to family, that was, I guess, in 2016. That happened at the same time. And so I was, I guess, in touch like with my parents about where I was mentally. And so they, of course, were like, oh, my gosh, is it because you're gay and I'm like no look I've been dealing with this stuff forever <laughs> it just happened to fall at the same time um, which they've been very accepting it just was like you know when you hit them with two things they're like mm -hmm. do these things go together <laughs> and they didn't um, you know I do imagine people in the LGBTQ community have unique struggles that yeah. could be factors in mental illness, right. you know, and in the aspects of mental illness, it can be environmental. And, you know, mm -hmm. maybe if they're in circumstances where they're not understood, like, you right. know, is it, how do you make, uh, make sense of the like correlation that there is? Yeah, gosh, I know from at least the few months that I was closeted from like my family, it was very depressing. 
I didn't think that I would experience like typical symptoms, I guess. Like I know a lot of people who are closeted say they feel like they're lying to people and that they're, yeah, just hiding their life. And I didn't think that I would experience that because I had just, I had been around an accepting environment. I knew my parents, they're, they've always been, you know, do your own thing type of people. And uh, yeah, I, I can see how people get really depressed, especially if they're closeted for long periods of time. And I can even see how that drives people to commit suicide because if you're not able to be 100% yourself, then especially for LGBT youths who grow up in a very conservative environment with family who they either know are not accepting or they don't know if they're accepting being closeted and you know still trying to figure themselves out but then you feel like you're hiding that can be very taxing on your body and soul because yeah. I experienced it and I was only positive for like two months or so and I was just like, it was just eating me up inside. And that's when I was starting my treatment. And I just was like, okay, one of these things has to get off my plate. And so I know I can just drive. I had to drive 10 hours to go <laughs> go um, come out to them. And they had gotten off a cruise. <laughs> and I was like, mom, dad, I'm gay. Bye. <laughs> and I drove 10 hours back. And then... Um, then the questions came once I was back. <laughs> so I was like, that's fine. But um, yeah, no, I can definitely see how LGBT individuals who are dealing with mental illness, how it can just be so heavy that sometimes they feel like there's only one out. And I know that that's um, unfortunately a theme with the younger generation. Not to say that doesn't happen generation as well right but, right but um yeah that's just something that I know that I went through on a very minor scale and then I can't imagine going years knowing that you know you're gay and then not being able to talk yeah to I definitely it. can't imagine you know having to repress a part of yourself yeah yeah I mean I can't tend to know experientially but I can imagine that's really hard so, is this something you've talked at all with Tina about? How early on in the relationship did that come up? First date. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, we met on an app called Her, which is just, um, it's just for women and women. That was my first time ever using a dating app. And so, this is cheesy, but I guess I'll give you, like, a little bit of our backstory. I just, I saw her picture, and... I had never used a dating app at all before, but I had just seen her picture, and I just had kind of like one of those like love at first sight moments. I know it's cheesy, um, and I just was like, I like have to at least like talk to her and get to know her, and so we set up a date like a week or two later. So we had just been like texting. We had talked on the phone twice just to make sure like we heard each other's voices and could like recognize each other. Which she's six foot tall and got red hair so I probably couldn't miss her but on our first date we had like a 
we had like a six or seven hour long first date. And we went and did some stuff and then we went out to eat. And then afterwards, we just sat in the car and we just talked for a good like two, three hours. And we just hit everything. <laughs> um, she brought up um, her struggles. She brought up her relationship with her mom, which isn't there currently. Um, and it, it hadn't, hasn't been there since her parents got divorced six or so years ago. So she, at the time, didn't really have, she still doesn't need one, but she doesn't have, like, a label. And so she didn't realize that she had any sort of mental illness at all, like, during that first date. And so... We just were talking, and so it was just kind of chalked up to anxiety and and that type of stuff. And so I was very open. I was just like, you know, I have depression. It's being treated. It was stable at the time, and that was the only thing I was being treated for, and panic attacks. So um, I said, you know, I do have panic attacks, but I have, you know, medicine that I take, and I go and I see counselor. And um, so... I just, like, laid it out there first date and also went into the stuff with my brother because I was like, you know, this is also who I am, and I just wanted her to know who I was. And um, she did the same, and so we just talked back and forth. And then we didn't get so much into the LGBT aspect of it until later and just kind of, like, the correlation between it and now we'll we'll get into something that makes us mad we're just like yeah and this tv show just thinks that they can have gay people who are also you know schizophrenic and we'll get into it like that but um but is that like is that like annoyance that tv shows um having characters like that uh for like as a pr move or something yes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially um, lesbians. Mm. I mean, I will say that that is, I guess, the one thing that draws people to watch it. It's like, oh my gosh, there's gay women? Gay women kissing? And you're just like, come, come on. Like, mm-hmm. you know. And so we do, you know, have our grievances with that. Because <laughs> I know... Pretty Little Liars was popular uh, a couple years ago. And so they had one of the four main girls. She was gay. And I know probably ratings, like, went through the roof. As soon as, like, she came out and was, like, she had, like, this whole, like, relationship with one of the girls. And, like, it was very, it was, like, none of the other relationships were like that, like, between a male and female, but then, like, everything had to be so sensual, and they had to show, like, the candles and everybody kissing, like, with the lesbians, and so, mm-hmm. so. Is it, like, frustrating that, kind of like how you said with mental disorder, um, there can't be a character with mental disorder, and that's just kind of a feature of them rather yes. than the, the broad, the big focus, and it's kind of similar with yes. people outside of vanilla sexuality? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's not character who is gay. It's gay character. Right. And that's it. Right. And that's their only quality. And right. if they have any struggle, it's gay. <laughs> it's nothing else. And so, yeah, we've we've talked about that. 
we haven't found not off the top of my head I can't think of a gay character who has any type of mental disorder because it has to be one or the other like I said mm. it just has to be this is their main feature mm-hmm. it would be too much to have them that's like two right. talking points to like check boxes for the TV show <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. it's too complex for one character mm-hmm. The movie The Family Stone has a gay deaf guy, but that's not a mental disorder. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's closer. Yeah. <laughs> deaf part. Never, yeah. More multidimensional, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, um, I uh, feel like this, uh, this conversation could go a number of different ways, but I know you have, like, a lot of concerns that are, like, family-related, and, mm-hmm. you, you know, you talked a lot about everything that reminds you of Jonas, mm-hmm. um, I know you also, there have been other struggles, like your sister had some struggles. With, uh, is that something you're up for talking about? Yeah, kind of, uh, yeah, no, everything is, like I said, I'm going to have the book. So, Adria, she is, I'm the middle child. Adria is two and a half years older, and Jonas is two and a half years younger. So, she's 25. So, she was diagnosed with bipolar 2 at... 15 maybe and so her journey is probably the one that I've seen the most just because I was you know the little sister like watching eyes wide open like wow is this this gonna happen to me (laughs) so she flew off the handle and I mean that literally like they did not diagnose her until it was after so she had like no warning she just went Zero to 100. And we were moving, we've moved around quite a lot. And so we had just moved from Ohio to Arkansas, which is 14, 15, around that age. And so that move basically destroyed her um, because she moved away from her boyfriend, who she did love and cared about. And so I think that might have been her tipping point she didn't tell me a lot being a little sister she just kind of (laughs) lost it going into ninth or tenth grade she got super depressed would just spend you know hours and hours locked in her room and then she started showing symptoms of bipolar and she will never admit to this and i would never bring it up to her she used to (laughs) bullied me like crazy she and this is when I would tell like okay she's in like a manic phase now that I'm older I can see like oh she was definitely in mania she would cuss me out I'm like a 12 13 year old at this point like eh. she would just cuss me out for anything and everything I guess she's kind of like the tougher one out of us two very athletic and would channel usually her aggression into like sports and stuff when she didn't have sports, she would channel it into me. So she just went through a really hard time there. And she went to see a psychiatrist, and they got her on some medicine. I was, I guess, too young to know what medicine and stuff she was on. But I know that she was bipolar too, And then depression. She would take out her screen and climb onto the roof and literally just like throw a fit on top of the roof and we were like in the middle of town people can see when you're driving by 
my sister up on the roof <laughs> throwing a fit and my parents down <laughs> like yelling at her like Adrian you need to come down <laughs> and I would just be we had a pool back there and I would just be like laying on the pool and I would have to like call in and be like mom dad Adrian's on the roof again <laughs> and that was how she dealt with things <laughs> unfortunately at that time and so now she's a little bit more stable she went through some hard times when my niece was born. She's still suffering from PTSD from her birth. Just because it was an emergency, like they had to just rush her back. They didn't get to do any epidural, anything like that. She had planned on having a natural delivery. Of course, a lot of people plan on having a natural delivery. But it was especially traumatizing when she woke up four hours later and was like, where's my baby? And so everybody had gone to be with Kennedy three hours away, except for me and my mother and my little brother. And so hearing her wake up like every, <laughs> every time, and she wouldn't remember what happened. And just hearing the wails of a mother who believed that she had lost her child, and that still sticks with me. Um, I've also been diagnosed with PTSD and still recovering from that. Mm -hmm. From that traumatic birth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from that. So uh, she still deals with that a lot. So for the entire month of June, I know, which is when Kennedy was born, she just goes through depressive episodes like no other. Like she cannot physically get out of bed for almost the entire month. And she just had my nephew. He's one now, so she had him two years ago. And that was also not a pleasant experience. He also had to spend time in the NICU. And so it was like reopening the wound and then just sticking your finger in it a thousand times. And so she went through those two episodes. And so honestly, she has not been the same since. And that's just something that I've, I've noticed just as a sister, um, not even as a professional, just as... You know, knowing her character before and after because she gets she gets so tearful now you can't even bring up anything related to to their births and I know that June is coming up and I just am nervous for her she got sent home on the 4th of July and I know from the beginning of June to like 4th of July she's she's checked out and that's been tough because she has two kids. And then getting into more recent stuff. She attempted suicide back in September. So she was hospitalized. They have to do a 72-hour hold is what's required. If you are at risk for harming yourself or harming others. And... Clearly, she was at risk for harming herself again because it was a failed suicide attempt. So they didn't have any beds open in the entire state of Arkansas for those three days that she was on hold. So finally, at like the end of that 72 hours, they were like, oh, okay, we have a bed over in Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. They, so she's in Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was the next best option. That was an she had to go cross states just to 
And it was a six-hour drive, if I remember. And they released her, and at least from my perspective, I was like, why the frick would you release somebody who attempted suicide? I was mortified. And whenever I figured that out, I luckily they gave her some sweet medicine, and she was asleep in the back. But I was like, they have no idea what went down. Like, they could be, you know, they can tell the hospital one story. It wasn't like that. Um, they didn't, yeah, you didn't know. But the hospital doesn't know that. Yeah. And so for them to be so irresponsible to release a person who has just attempted suicide it was just amazing to me. I was like, <laughs> if she had woken up and it had been a worse situation, Lord knows, like, what could have happened. And I just think, you know, how many people have been through that? And so she was there in that outpatient or inpatient facility for a week. And then they transferred her to outpatient therapy, which is check in with us for like two hours every day. And she was thrown right back into her role of being the mother of two being with her husband at her house and then going to outpatient therapy. She had already been going to therapy and then she was going to the special outpatient therapy at the hospital. Yeah. And it did nothing. You got to be worried about your niece and nephew as well. I mean, in that situation, it's not the best setup to to parent. Oh, yeah. That's uh, that's our situation. Right. Oh, yeah. I've had, I guess three constant people in my life who have had mental disorders and so that's my mom, my sister, and my brother. Mm-hmm. And never once have I seen these people in a stable place. So that speaks a lot to me. Yeah. Um, just seeing that, you know, I've seen them for 12, 13 years and not a single one has been in a place where they've been able to say, I'm stable and I'm happy and I'm, you know, living the life that I wanted to. All you know is people not getting over it. Right. But then I know that there are people out there who get depressed and then get better. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm working towards because I think mine is a lot of um, circumstantial. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I'm working towards. Yeah. I think that... Or at least I hope mine is the case that I can, you know, I'm depressed right now, but hopefully I can get better and get off medicine and have a happy life. Well, and I think your perspective is an important one to hear. We, we have like these stark contrasts that we really want to see as black and white and not see the gray areas. I think one is definitely nature versus nurture, where we want to either say, oh, it's, it's 100% genetics or... Right oh, you know, it doesn't matter about genetics. It's probably like a middle way is healthiest from where I'm sitting. But thank, I mean, thanks a ton for talking to me and sharing all this. I know it's heavy stuff and hard. It would be really hard having what you've been through be your experience just because you see everywhere you turn, career, family. I so appreciate you opening up like this because I know a little bit of it, but I haven't walked in your shoes. So thank you. Well, I think... I think what you're doing is is good and important because 
I mean, the more resources that are out there and the more mm-hmm. research that goes into it, hopefully, yeah, we can break the stigma or at least educate people just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are. have maybe a balanced perspective by hearing all these other perspectives. Right. And speaking of, you know, as a nurse, which is a really valuable perspective, and speaking of resources, you mentioned the lack of psych beds, which was really shocking for me to hear, you know, in Arkansas. And I think you even mentioned in Tennessee too, there is like a dearth of of psych beds in space. But what, what would you say is the biggest change you would like to see across mental health? (laughs) Hard to pick one, I guess. Yeah. More education, at least to professionals or people who are thinking of entering so there is a shortage they always talk about the shortage of nurses well there's a shortage of nurses in psychiatric care Mm -hmm. and so that plays a really big part of not having enough space because if you don't have any staff you can't have any beds you can't have any patients yeah yeah and so it's going to take some time but it would be nice if there was more of a focus maybe on getting people into the healthcare field who understand mental illness and can provide these patients with more care than what they're getting. Because like I said, even in the psych facility that I was in, mm-hmm. the nurses, they were still referring to their patients as crazy. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have compassion for the patients in your field, what are you doing? <laughs> like, why are you there? Right. And so I think it's going to take a lot of education. And yeah, and not just compassion, but like well, like you said, education right. and like uh, accurate perception. You know, that that's like the default idea. So yeah. in a sense, you can't. It's hard to blame them because right. you know the average person on the street thinks if you have a mental disorder, you're crazy. Like we right. call it ill it's a very you know stark right. contrast we draw yeah and putting people in these boxes and labeling with diagnoses and so um, yeah I, I definitely agree with you there yeah yeah um and tennessee is actually the one i have more knowledge of with the lack of beds i only knew arkansas because of adria's like whole episode but mm-hmm. jonas whenever he was here so he's been hospitalized more times than i can count and he's been released more times than i can count because they don't have beds. Even though he is a danger to himself and to our family, he will be released. And the hospital knows. And nobody is doing anything. So Jonas has been hospitalized multiple times and then released after that 72-hour hold if they cannot find a psych bed. And so that was tough him being released back into the care of my parents and then I was at home as well and he is clearly a threat to himself and the family but due to lack of psych beds they can't do anything besides that 72 hour hold so if they can't find a psych bed then it's like tough luck you know have a safe travel home and hope to see you on your next police call. <laughs> so we had so many times where he would be in the hospital and they'd be waiting 
and they'd be like, oh, there's a bed that popped up three hours away. And so it was lucky it was in the state of Tennessee. And so they'd be like, okay, so you'll hand them off to my dad. And they're like, you'll drive them down to this hospital. And uh, yeah, they'll take you from there. And it's like, my dad's like, you understand he's angry at me and I'm the one who's driving him. So it's like the they're happy to let the responsibility stop after they've you know, oh, yeah. fulfilled that 72 hours. It's like, yeah. all right, not a problem. Yeah, yeah. And then they'll gladly come back to your house and be like, oh, everything's bad again? Well, we can we can take them to the hospital. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, okay, that's not the response that I wanted. Like when a business I... chore rather than an yes. emotional concern. It's definitely a chore. And, yeah, he's gone to North Carolina. He's gone to the other side of the state. And then that's just when he was in Tennessee. And that was frustrating to me as a minor because I was like, my safety is at at risk, you know? And so, yeah, they'll just release him as long as as they're out of, he's out of their hands. They're just like, okay, you know? Yeah your problem now (laughs) and then when they get a phone call two weeks later all right we'll be out there and found a house same story yeah well i hear you that's that's bleak and hard but i I am hopeful that through you know education and talking about this stuff it's as you said it's probably going to be a slow process but hopefully we can make some of these changes that i think would make a really big impact you know in both our healthcare system and just our thinking about mental health and thank you a ton for sharing your perspective, you know, as a nurse, but also just your personal story, I think is powerful. You know, I relate to it in terms of doing that work that, you know, is is hard to do, you know, when your motivation and also your pain become intertwined, you know, and connected. It's a hard thing to deal with. And right. hearing from someone who dealt with on the level you have has, has been really valuable. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. That's it. That is it for my conversation with Olivia. I hope you enjoyed hearing it. I hope you could hear more of Olivia than you heard of the room and static and whatever was going on with the latter half of the audio. A huge thank you to Olivia for sharing everything she did, for being open as a book, delving into a lot of personal pain, a lot of family pain, a lot of identity pain, and a lot of pain around what she has to do every day in being brave enough to take the empathy and the compassion that was born of this pain and of seeing everything she saw and to do something constructive with it to help people. I haven't seen half the shit Olivia's seen, and that's what I aspire to do. So to see Olivia doing it in such a big way is a huge inspiration. Kudos to her. I think what she adds to this podcast that we haven't really had before on this scale is combining professional and personal perspectives on mental health, having dealt with it herself, having seen it in those closest to her, and having seen it in her job. So having both sides of this understanding where often there's a chasm separating what we see as the experts of mental health and as the mentally ill or as the people dealing with it. And I really don't think there should be a chasm. I think, as I've said before, we all have our own mental health journey. We all have some mental health to contend with. So thinking about what Olivia's seen, it's no wonder this is a heavy topic for her. 
and it's no wonder she can speak about it so beautifully. That's the type of perspective I love to share on this podcast. So that's it for this week. I'll be coming at you next week with another interview next Thursday. In the meantime, once again, if you haven't and if you're liking the podcast, I would really appreciate any time you can spare to write a quick review, to rate the podcast, to keep the podcast going. And beyond all else, I really appreciate you listening. I love the opportunity to share this and to provide something of value for those of you who listen each week. So it was great having you, and I'll talk to you next week. Have a great one. Bye.